Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 38, where we're traveling back to 1980. We've entered the new decade. And the 35th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, David Del Tredici, for his work for Soprano and Orchestra in memory of a summer day. So Dave, tell me what you know or your past experiences with David Del Tredici. Well, I first want to mention that we're recording on the birth, the 148th birthday of a previous winner <laughs> that we've talked about. Of course. Charles <laughs> E. Ives. Everything is about Charles E. Ives with you. It is. I know. I can't can't get over it here. Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, yes, David Del Tredici. Not I d- Charles Ives. Not Charles E. Ives, no. Uh, I honestly don't know. I don't I I don't know when I came across his music or his name or anything. I now, given my undergrad background at the University of Illinois, where you didn't write anything tonal, I think his name probably was Mud, so right. I wouldn't have heard it there. I think probably sometime in grad school, mm. but um, not much. I think reading about him maybe in a in a 20th century music history post-45 class, sure. I think, because of the Alice in Wonderland pieces, which this is one of, um, but so, so very little. And then more recently, once I got into his music more, uh, I had a recording by a pianist named Anthony DeMare, I think, and he recorded a bunch of his piano music, and it was music of all gay composers and mm-hmm. gay male composers, and he's a very, very prominent one right. who wrote a lot of music, uh, gay poets and topics. So then I've, I've learned more about him recently, but that's about all I know at, at the time. So how about you? So I found him in undergrad. Oh, you did? Because he, Final Alice, ended up being in one of my textbooks. Wow. And I remember looking at it and going, what the heck is this? Because <laughs> yeah. it seems such an anomaly, you know, going chronologically in music history, that some of your Final Alice written in the mid-70s right before this work. And it's tonal and about Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And you've been kind of living in this uh, very non-tonal, gnarly, gnarly <laughs> world up until then. So I was like, what in the world is this whenever it came across? So that was the first time I encountered him. But then after that, in my grad work, I don't remember ever talking about him. No, no. Completely, completely overlooked in terms of the the work in, I, you're saying in theory and in musicology and graduate, never discussed. Nothing, nothing. And that's something I brought up with my, I'm teaching an introduction to post-tonal theory right now. And I brought up last week about the composers, somebody said, what about, are we ever going to talk about Shostakovich or Prokofiev? And I said, probably not, because they're not considered the composers that we discuss as the, quote, innovative or, you know, who innovative new techniques or things. And I think Del Tredici certainly fits in that because he's seen as kind of, although at the time it was pretty bold. It was very radical. Yeah, and radical. I think now, later, at least looking back, people see him as kind of a, I don't know, somebody, what's the word? Not retrograde, but uh, regressive figure, mm-hmm. somebody who's not progressive and pushing things forward, sort of anachronistic in the past. And I think that's a shame because there's a lot you can learn from music like that. Well, maybe we should tell the story. Telling the story. Mm-hmm. 
So it's interesting to me that we talk about, just in the intro there, about how he's overlooked, and you mentioned Shostakovich and Prokofiev. Another character you could mention there is Aaron Copeland, previous yeah, winner. Previous winner. Who is talked about in creating an American sound, but otherwise mo- a lot of his music is just not discussed kind of in the, oh, yeah. the mainstream of kind of academic literature. Um, I think people have come around and he's gotten more conversation in the past 20 years. But Del Tredici was a protege of Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. And Copeland said this about Del Tredici. He's a rare find among <laughs> composers, a creator with a truly original gift. I venture to say that his music is certain to make a lasting impression on the American musical scene. I know of no other composer of his generation who composes music of greater freshness and daring or with more personality. Well, that's pretty high praise. High praise, but completely but wrong. Completely wrong. Which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, Del Tredici, you can watch a lot of interviews online. Uh, we, we did reach out to him and his people. Uh, so maybe if we if we ever hear back, we'll get some answers to some questions. But uh, he, he has a lot of interviews online and he talks about his training. And it's mm-hmm. it's he's born in California and wanted to be a pianist. He was going to be a concert pianist and then had a really mean teacher at the University of California, Berkeley, and then decided to try writing a piece and then... He showed it to somebody, one of his teachers, and he, the guy said, you're a composer. And so then that was from then on. Well, he but, had a freshness of invention. It, fre- <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> but yeah, he had this great, uh, like all the composers of his generation, writing very thorny, gnarly, mm-hmm. atonal music on James Joyce, I think was the first big influence, writing songs uh, based on James Joyce and really complex structures atonal avant-garde and then as we know had this awakening with lewis carroll mm-hmm. and getting into alice in wonderland and and andrew have you ever read alice in wonderland of course uh, oh <laughs> have you okay. not read <laughs> well i didn't but you know how i am with that type of i know that, if any fantasy yeah but it's so fast it's a fascinating allegory and a lot of really interesting things in that particular uh set of books uh, that Lewis Carroll wrote. And I can see how he would be, his imagination would be fired because there is so much fantastic imagery in there. And he started in 1968 and for about 20 years composed nothing but Alice settings. Yeah. So uh, Pop Potpourri in uh, 1968, Alice Symphony 1969, Adventures Underground 1971, Vintage Alice 1972, <laughs> Final Alice, which I mentioned earlier, 1976. Uh, this particular work that we're going to talk about today for the Pulitzer Prize in memory of a summer day, 1980, quaint events, happy voices, all in the golden afternoon, which is uh, combined to create Child Alice, this big massive work uh, that includes memory of a summer day now, Haddock's Eve, 1985, <laughs> and then a 90 minute opera, Dumb, uh, Dumb D Tweedle in 1995 to 19, uh, finished in 1995 and premiered by the Detroit Symphony. I mean, that's a... Wow. He, he, I think he got everything he could, milked everything out of Alice in Wonderland musically one could probably get. And these, we should say these are not small, these are not little five-minute songs. Right, these either. are massive, massive works. Yes, for voice and orchestra. And in one of the interviews, he talked about how he, like you said, he was struck by the imagery mm-hmm. and the, the, the games uh, yeah. that are within the language and a poem within a poem and images within images and things. And he said he tried to make the music like that and that the singer who premiered one of the pieces said, oh, this is too hard. And he just said, oh, well, you have to do it, basically. This is mm-hmm. what I want. This is how I hear it. So always pushing, and it's very demanding This is very music. demanding music. Yeah, it really is. 
And then in the 1990s, he kind of shifted focus. He moved away from Alice. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, he moved to actually looking at homosexuality and mm-hmm. setting a lot of gay poets and kind of, uh, I mean, we've seen this before in some of the earlier oh, <laughs> people yeah. that we've talked about. Um, but he actually kind of dove in and actually began to say, look, I'm a gay composer. I'm going to write about gay themes and move that way in the mid-1990s, uh, kind of on into the t- 2000s. So it seems like he gets obsessed with something. Yeah. And that's kind of where his his muse comes from. And he just plums that, <laughs> goes deep in that mine <laughs> as, as well as he can mine it, uh, coming up with a lot of, as you said, huge monumental works. Yeah, definitely. And the, the most recent interview I saw, he said, now I'm on to chamber music and I'm really digging into... I'm writing string quartets and piano trios and just, just yeah, like just grabs onto something and goes with it. Yeah, it's really a, a fascinating kind of uh, approach for a composer. Yeah. So uh, looking at his background, so he's not like some of our others, like many of our others who came through the pipeline mm-hmm. with studying with, you know, obviously he was a protege of Copeland, but he wasn't really one of his students in college or right. didn't grow up that way. But then his teaching career was fairly in that milieu because mm-hmm. we have stints at Harvard. Uh, we have let's see, graduated from Princeton, uh, was in Tanglewood, uh, SUNY Buffalo, and Boston University. So had that pedigree of being around the East Coast group. Yep. And so I can understand how he would have fit into this group, the Pulitzers, and knew a lot of the players. Well, he, that's exactly right, that he was in, in the world yeah. and moving in the right circles to be recognized by the Pulitzers. And I think we've seen that the Pulitzers have been fairly conservative (laughs) (laughs) in terms of who's being awarded. Uh, We've talked uh, quite often on the podcast about the important composers now who just were overlooked. I mean, here we are in 1980 and John Cage's name has never come up, but (laughs) talk about a hugely influential composer. We're also by 1980, the minimalists have had their day. None of them have been discussed at this point in history. So in that way, it kind of makes sense that he's someone they would celebrate. I mean, Schwantner, the last winner, yeah. is also one of those composers who in some ways was a neo-romantic, yeah, uh, yeah. bringing back those kind of tonal procedures. Although uh, with Schwantner, I think they were a little bit more um, progressive than we see with Drell Tredici, who very much is <laughs> like he's composing back in Aaron Copeland's day. That's kind yeah. of where his music seems to fit. Very much so. Well, maybe we should actually discuss the music now as we go behind the notes. Behind the Notes. So this piece was uh, written for Leonard Slatkin. So who was appeared earlier? I wasn't didn't he premiere? Was it Schwantner's? Or yes, he was. Uh, he was connected with Schwantner. Yeah. So this is we've entered the age of Schlatkin, yeah. evidently <laughs> as a composer. Apparently so. Yeah. Uh, but he heard Final Alice at the Chicago Symphony and decided that he wanted to commission Del Tredici for the St. Louis Symphony, which is where he was at the time, uh, for their hundredth anniversary. That mm-hmm. was the the idea. That write a piece for the hundredth anniversary, and the result is Memory of a Summer Day, solo soprano and orchestra, and the text comes from Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Now that's now for my ignorance here. That so there's. Alice in Wonderland, and, and then, then through, through the, the looking okay, glass. Okay, there's two. Yes, there's okay. two separate novels, Dave. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have a you have a job before we record again to go read. I will. I, all I know is White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, which is a pretty good distillation uh, pretty good. of of that. 
Uh, the world premiere was in February of 1980. <laughs> uh, Phyllis Bryn Juleson was the singer for the St. Louis Symphony. And it was an immediate success with that audience, just standing ovation given. Um, but it's an enormous piece, yeah. an enormous piece. We were trying to decide if this was the largest non-operatic Pulitzer we've had to this point. I mean, even the symphonies that we've had win. Yeah. Running an hour long. I don't even think, yeah, the, the Piston Symphony, n- none of them have been that long. So and this is in three movements, too, that right. are very long, somewhat shorter, very long. Yeah, and basically soprano aria. Yeah. <laughs> short little, well, short. Yeah, 15 <laughs> minutes. In comparison, <laughs> it's 10 minutes shorter than the other two movements. Yeah. Uh, and then a final. So you have the song Simple Alice, then you have the kind of orchestral part, triumphant Alice, and then you have the final aria, the ecstatic Alice. Yes. So in terms of the musical language and the musical style of the piece, I it's I would say it's a hodgepodge of a lot of mm-hmm. different styles, very pluralistic. Um, you have moments that sound to me like Strauss or Bruckner, yeah. uh, just big orchestral music. It, it's spectacular, mm-hmm. I would say, in a lot of ways. And then you also have much more subdued, and then you have some, I don't know if it's atonal, but certainly less consonant music going. So it's a real pluralistic it really is. style. I mean, it really reminded me, actually, of the kind of um, Mahler yeah. works for the orchestral leader by Mahler, because you have oh, this yeah. very full sound that's embracing everything, and it's just... It is overwhelming. <laughs> it is. It's like spectacular. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can see why the audience would jump to their feet at the end. Yeah. You've listened to this for an hour and it is completely overwhelming. Yeah. And to that Mahler comparison too, think of, I remember when I saw the Das Lied von der Erde at the mm-hmm. Kansas City Symphony, we could hardly hear the singer because the orchestra is just so loud so on much. top of it. And, and the soprano in this piece has to really wail. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have a big voice. <laughs> a big voice. This is not for a Baroque singer here. You won't, you just won't cut through. But it's almost monothematic in the way yeah. that it's put together, yeah. which is really fascinating. So I thought we would just play uh, for everyone the main melody yeah. <laughs> that oh, boy. is going to be stuck in your head <laughs> for days it after you listen to this mine. piece. Yeah. So uh, this is the main melody of the at the opening of the simple song. That was 1980, huh? That was 1980, which is bizarre in some ways. I mean, historically, it's kind of bizarre because you yeah. hear that, and it sounds like it was written decades before yes. 1980. Yeah. But then it keeps coming back in, in all these weird guises, so I thought I'd play the same melody <laughs> in the second part, the, the triumphant, and hear how he kind of shifted it, because this, I think, gives you an idea of the broadness of the musical language that he's going to subject this melody to. <laughs> Well, 
Well, that's very much like Mahler or Ives. It is. It's yeah. almost like a carnival. Like a carnival, yeah. There's so much going on in that section. Yeah. And that whole movement is just oh, yeah. wild. Yeah. It shifts so quickly from different ideas and different musical gestures. Now, I don't know about you, but I... I I didn't know what the text was, and I, it, the text was really secondary. It was almost Wagnerian, where the, yeah. the the singing is not the main point. I mean, it's set beautifully for the English language. Like you yes. can you can understand what they're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right; it doesn't matter much what they're saying. The point is this: just kind of overwhelming. I keep saying overwhelming. No, I need it, a different word. That's exactly how it, it is. It just struck me after I yeah. felt kind of tired after listening to it. It's exhausting because there's so much going on, and it's just so, in some ways, bombastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very true. Uh, it, formally, you know, we said it's the aria, then the interlude. I guess it's called here, and then in the aria. Uh, is it because it, that theme comes back so much? Do you feel like it's got a theme and variations character to it? Or I thought of that, but I didn't want to bring it up I because know, I know what you think I about know, theme and variations. I was, yeah, I brought it up so you didn't have to. <laughs> but I kind of felt like it was. Yeah, yeah. Because it really does not go away. I mean, it really, no. that little theme that ba bum, ba bum, ba bum, which now is going to be stuck in my head. Yeah, I had long. last night, I had to go do something like listen to something really out just to get it out of my head so I wouldn't be humming it sleeping. Yeah. It, I mean, it really wormed its way in there, but yeah. partially it does that because it is everywhere. Yes. Yes. In fragments, sometimes yeah. entire arc of the melody sometimes, but in, I mean, so theme and variations, I thought that, but in my listening, I didn't really hear it as theme and variations just so much as it's just monothematic. Mm -hmm. It's just built around that one melody and that's the through line that's holding the entire piece together. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. It's not, it's, it really does uh, flow together well and go from section to section. You don't hear it like a theme and variations where it's cut and... And it doesn't feel like three different sections. No, it doesn't. It feels like one big, massive piece. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you think of this musical language? I mean, so here we are in 1980. Yeah. And we talked last time about Schwantner, and it is tonal in a way, but it has a lot of interesting timbres. This is a straight down the middle of the road, as you can imagine, in terms of the timbre. I mean, it's it plays to the orchestra strengths, and it plays to the 19th century orchestra strengths. So yeah. I'm curious about how you think about that musical language, especially in 1980. Well, what I was thinking of when I was listening to it, we, of course, the previous people we've talked about like Schwantner have some relation or Druckmann, but, mm -hmm. but this is different. It reminds me more of George Rockberg mm -hmm. uh, taking in the third string quartet in 73 or anything where it was taking almost Beethovenian yeah. slow movement and writing that was a theme in variations mm -hmm. and having that style. This is a little less clear, but it's still in that like taking a tonal language and updating it for 1980, for the 20th century. And he talked about in the interview about why, he talked about this piece particularly, why he, it was tonal. And he said that was the only way I could express the language and the images and what was happening. So I think it's done for programmatic reasons. Mm -hmm. And then he, he found, he's funny, he says, well, and of course I know how to write tonal music. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, clearly. He's, he clearly <laughs> does. And that's, that's for sure. But I, in a way, I don't think it was... Hmm. I think th we've been moving away from it for a while, from the hardcore avant-garde. I mean, Carter was really the last in 73. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the last really high modernist yeah. piece we've had in our winners for a while. And now we're just taking it even further back to the past. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you basically had the Pulitzer winners at the beginning 
the 1943 up until basically until the the fracas yeah, until in the, the 64 <laughs> the yeah, Pulitzer pivot the Pulitzer pivot uh, until that moment you have very conservative very european looking composers then we have this little stretch of time where they're you know the electronic pieces yeah, yeah, are winning Kirchner the Kirchner and, the, and, the, and, the and Carter and these really kind of out there avant-garde pieces which is really strange and then we've now swung back in the pendulum yeah. over the past few episodes to listening to music that sounds like it would have won in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you're since you're much a big expert at this time period, what else was happening in in the early 80s in classical music? Well, this was the big was turn. This, kind of the, this was the turn that okay. was happening. So a okay. lot of composers were beginning to move in the 1980s and that's why people talk about a neo-romantic movement. Mm. Uh, and there are even institutions in New York that were shepherding this kind of movement along and celebrating these composers. And it's really easy. I mean, you can see someone like Slatkin. Oh, yeah. yeah. Conductors love this music, and so it's easier for them to get their music performed by these big orchestras, which then just encourages more mm. kind of growth of this style. So I think definitely this, so, is, this is the movement of the time. Okay. So so Del Tredici was in the zeitgeist. He was I think absolutely. capturing what was going I think on. Absolutely. Yeah. And in some ways, he kind of helped jumpstart it with things like Final Alice. That was, mm. that was really a kind of uh, important work in, in that shift towards more romanticism. I mean, just like you mentioned, the third quartet of Rockburg, I think that's another work three years before Final Alice. So I think right there in those early 70s, there's a lot of composers who are going back to tonality and saying, we like the things we can express <laughs> through tonality, yeah. just like you said with programmatic. We like the things we can express with tonality. Let's go back that direction. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should see what if everyone else was uh, in agreement with Del Tredici being in the zeitgeist. Hit or miss? Well, should we start with the report from the jury? Yes, and we've got some interesting features in this year. Uh, so this, as we said, was premiered by the St. Louis Symphony with Leonard Slatkin on 1980. This would be a great concert. It's my favorite Mozart symphony, which is the number 38 in D major, the Prague, hmm. was the first half, and then this was the second half. Imagine that. There weren't uh, other pieces on this concert. <laughs> you couldn't fit anything <laughs> could, else on this concert. No, not at all. So that was the second half. Interesting they put that on the second half and not the first. So yeah. make that... That was, that was the highlight. That's what that, you were yeah, coming to hear. That was what you were there for. So the, the board says, in a report of the jury in 1980, it was the strong consensus of the music nominating jury that the 1980 Pulitzer Prize in Music be given to In Memory of a Summer Day by David Del Tredici. The work scored for soprano, solo, and orchestra was commissioned by the St. Louis Symphony, as we talked about. The jury found this work outstanding among this year's music entries for its grand, heroic sweep, expression, or expressive power, and masterly handling of vocal and orchestral resources. Yeah, yeah. so the jury Great at fact. the time was uh, some familiar names to listeners of Hearing the Pulitzers. Carl Husa was the chair. Jacob Druckmann was a member, and then Alan Kriegsman. That name I don't know. No, you? music and so, dance critic, Washington Post. Okay, so two previous winners. Yes. 
and, and, then a, and a, a critic. Critic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the change, we have a sort of a mini pivot here in 1980. We have supplementary comments submitted by the jury. It is hoped that in announcing the Pulitzer Awards this year, it will be made clearer to the public that there has been a change in policy and that this is the first year that second and third choice nominees are being announced with the winners. It is also hoped that the policy change will be made clear to entrants for the prize in successive years. The music jury wishes to make the Pulitzer Prize board aware that being designated a finalist may be received by some creative artists in a negative light and may be something that should be reconsidered for the music prize for this in future years. So before I divulge who the two alternates were, what do you think of that change? Well, this is a change that goes to today. They yeah. still announce the the two finalists, so you get three names whenever the Pulitzer Prize in Music is won. And I think next episode we'll be talking a little bit more about some of these changes and why they happen because next episode. Don't give it away. Giving too much away, but there's <laughs> there's some controversy uh, in the 1981 Music Prize. Uh, I think this is a, actually a good move on the part of the Pulitzer jury because it shows a little bit more of the breadth of what's available and what's being submitted to them and the breadth of the music that they're considering so that you get a better sense of what was there. And sometimes, I mean, looking at this, I'd be very curious to think about which one of these might have won and why it could not have won mm. at this time. Uh, I want to let you reveal before I say a little bit more about yes. these two pieces. Okay, so the second choice was Quintets for Orchestra by Lucas Foss, which is particularly striking for its evocation of mystical and poetical qualities. Mm. And then finally, the jury wishes to cite After the Butterfly for Trumpet and Seven Instruments by Morton Sabotnik as a composition of exceptional boldness and technical ingenuity. So I don't know either of those pieces. What, what do you know about them? Well, in some ways, the Sabotnik seems to be looking forward to me to where mm. music is eventually going to go by the time you get to the late uh, 1980s. I don't know that Lucas Foss work at all. Um, but it's interesting to me that those two names that we haven't heard before in the Pulitzer yeah. are now in the conversation. So instead of keeping these in the back room and us digging them up for this podcast, <laughs> they're actually now on the website yeah. of the Pulitzer Prize for anyone to see. That's a really great uh, point you made about how this shows, instead of just showing the winner and then people thinking, oh, well, who else was nominated? Now we see these, you can compare in a mm -hmm. sense how the winner fits with the other two because as we've seen many times we've there have been some composers we've wondered why didn't they win and why did i keep coming back to john lamontaine or or somebody like that why did he win when when martineau was up against mm -hmm. him or somebody more prominent so now we get a little bit of glimpse into that a little bit more transparent yeah yeah and again no spoilers we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in the next episode definitely things that were happening definitely well, the critics were actually pretty unanimous in supporting this work as well. So, of course, we mentioned that it was premiered by the St. Louis Symphony. So the St. Louis Post-Dispatch music editor named Frank Peters said this was a skillfully made ingratiating <laughs> work, comparing portions of the piece to Tristan and Isolde in his review, Jarimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Uh, and, of course, they ran a big article once it won the Pulitzer saying, look, a St. Louis yeah. Symphony piece won the Pulitzer. And Schleichen said... It won because it's a great piece, but also because Final Alice is such an important piece that mm. in some ways he saw this as a, a prize acknowledging the work of Final Alice in addition to 
in memory of a summer day. Now I really need to listen to Final Alice because it's been mentioned so many times. Yeah, by... it's an interesting work. You, you really should. Yeah. So this is what you can do is you can go and you can read <laughs> Lewis Carroll I have my books, homework assignment. And you can listen to Final Alice. Yeah. Uh, asked about it, of course, we always want to know what the composer thinks. Yes. So in an interview with Bruce Duffy, he said, well, it helps to win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> sure. When I got that, then I could much more call my own teaching tune. <laughs> that was one of the enormous benefits of winning something like that. Not that you asked. <laughs> And this is something you kind of alluded to, that Del Tredici is a good interview. Oh, my God. They are so entertaining. He's very catty. Kind <laughs> of so like catty. a nailed Ned Roram, sort of a similar, a little, he's, he's more outgoing or more outspoken than Ned Roram, but, but yes, the very catty comments. He's witty. not as cutting as Ned Roram. No, Ned no. Roram really gets some great little lines oh, in there. Oh, yeah. Del Tredici is not quite as cutting, but uh, really entertaining. Very entertaining. He'd be fun. I could see Virgil Thompson and... Uh, and doing well at a party and with David Del Tredici, I think they would have a fun time together. I think they would be interesting sparring partners. They, they would, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the piece was popular enough that it was actually choreographed a few years later, the National Ballet of Canada, uh, choreographed it in just a work called Alice. Mm. So, I mean, in the early 1980s, this was a, a piece that got around that people were very interested in. And as we mentioned earlier, it then becomes part of a larger work as if it wasn't large enough, it becomes <laughs> part of a larger work uh, called, called Child Alice that um, Del Tredici puts together uh, just a year after winning the Pulitzer. Yeah. So, wow. That's a lot of Alice. It's a lot of Alice. <laughs> so if you like... Yes, if you're a big fan of Alice. story and... of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and in fact, Child Alice actually deals with the historical Alice, not just the Alice in... Oh, that's right. He mentioned in one of the videos there's an acrostic that... It has that Lewis Carroll put in of the real Alice, mm -hmm. uh, which was a girl. It was a, like it was a, a real, yeah. In fact, if you go to um, uh, Christchurch, the part of Oxford University, and go in their main hall, their main dining hall, there's actually a stained glass image of the original Alice, oh, the wow. actual historical Alice. Wow. So deeply embedded deeply in British Im culture yeah. in interesting ways. All right, Absolutely. Dave, moment of truth. <laughs> Hit or miss for In Memory of a Summer Day. I'm going to give this a big hit, actually. I think it's a, it was spectacular. It was epic. It was uh, over the top uh, <laughs> in so many ways. All but, the things you like. All the things I love. <laughs> but it also had that tune that was just such an earworm and creative ways of transforming it and changing it around. Mm. I, I've, for not knowing any of the text and not, you know, the story, I think as a musical work, it's, it, you know, I, of course, sick, your mind is going to drift in a 60-minute mm -hmm. piece, but I, I found myself listening, and I would just come back to it, and it was very just yeah, engaging mm -hmm. to me. So I, I, I give it a big hit. Yeah. How about you? I'm the opposite. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, split vote here. Um, I appreciate everything you're saying. Um, it was spectacular. It was just too much for me. <laughs> I mean, I felt like you you're know a, you, After all, you are a minimalist scholar. Minimalist, but <laughs> you know when you get that... A sheet cake from Costco yeah. with the really thick icing, yes. and you start eating it. And at first, you're like, "This is great," and then you get about five bites in, you're like, "Oh my gosh, why am I eating this? It's, it's like just a bag of sugar. Too much yeah. sugar." That's how I felt listening to this. Mm. Uh, in many ways, and I think partially. So you said you didn't know Final Alice. I think because I know Final Alice, mm. I was expecting that, which to me is a much more uh, engaging, balanced work. Um, and a more interesting work. So in some ways it was because I was comparing it to another work. 
but I mean, that's why I kept coming back to that word <laughs> overwhelming. But at the end, I was just tired. I and you said you listened to it many, many times. After about two listens, I was like, I can't take <laughs> it anymore. I have to stop. So I appreciate what he was doing. It truly is spectacular. And I can see why uh, it was such a hit for audiences, because it would be really spectacular to listen to in the hall, concert hall, and to, to see all that going on. Uh, and get caught up in that feeling, I, absolutely. But for me, I don't think I need to listen to In Memory of a Summer Day another time. <laughs> I get it. I completely get it. I, let me just put it this way, though, to close up here. would If you saw it on a, a program, if you were at Kansas City Symphony was performing this, would you go see it? I probably would. I'd be interested to see it live. For the novelty For the factor. novelty of seeing it live. Yeah. But then I would probably call up and say, why don't you do Final Alice? <laughs> <laughs> ah, I can't win them all here. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about our project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short biography where you can read more about David Jaltredici, and we'll link to a bunch of the videos that you can see on YouTube. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And be sure to leave us a review, we're still waiting, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. Finally, join us next episode when we discuss the controversy of 1981 that Andrew alluded to earlier, where there was, once again, no winner in the music category. Until then, keep listening. 